We've been teaching through these three pegs through the year, and we've kind of got to the end of the year. There's two Sundays left, so we're going to smash kingdom expansion sort of into the last two weeks. <laughs> That's going to be good. Now, when we speak about kingdom expansion, um, if you think about it in the natural, right, we always think about army against army, nation against nation, wars where people expand their boundaries to try and extend their authority over the land, right? But for some reason, when we talk about well, maybe this is just me. When we think about kingdom expansion, I kind of picture one guy doing power evangelism in an M&M store in New York. Now, that is, that, that's part of it. But I, when I speak about kingdom expansion this morning, I, I, wanna, I want us all to think about this is slightly different to just one person because we are the body of Christ, right? We, as the body of Christ move kingdom expansion into the earth. It's not just about the evangelist. The evangelist will draw people in. The people with the gift of hospitality will welcome people into the church family. The pastors will make sure that they're loved and cared for. The teachers will teach them the Word of God. Um, and uh, so we as the body of Christ together work towards kingdom expansion. That's the only way we get lasting kingdom expansion, right? So to teach you guys about kingdom expansion this morning, I'm just going to tell you a Bible story. Is that all right? I think it's been a while since a lot of you sat in Sunday school and you just heard a nice Bible story, so I'm going to teach you a Bible story. To give you a little bit of uh, background and context to the story, so we're going to be talking out of 1 Samuel 13. What has happened up until this point is that the people of Israel have always been led by God. So we've coming out of this, they call it the period of judges, right? And that's where we get so many of our favorite stories like Gideon and, uh, and Deborah and Samson and a lot, of the, um, a lot of our favorite Bible stories come from that time of judges, right? Now, the Israelites were in the land of Israel, but they were scared because there were a lot of enemy areas that had infiltrated the land. And there was one particular guy named King Nahash. Now, he was from the Ammonites. And he had this really strange fetish for cutting out people's right eye. I don't know what it was, but he, he, every time he would fight a war, he would end up cutting out people's right eye. And there were whole pockets of Israel where everybody that lived there uh, only had a left eye because King Nahash had been there and he'd cut out their right eye. Um, so they were scared, and, and, and the Israelites' people were crying out to God, give us a king, give us a king, so that we can defeat Nahash. We want a king. We're scared. And, um, and the thing with God is that if you ask him often enough, sometimes he gives you what you want instead of what he wants. And, uh, and how many know that when you make a decision out of fear instead of out of hope, you often make the wrong decision? This is where we ended up with the people of Israel. So Samuel, the prophet of God, gathered all the people of Israel together, and he chose a man named Saul. And Saul was going to be Israel's first king. So Saul at this point, he's about 30 years old. Who do we have that's about 30 years old? Okay, Tim, Sarah, about 30 years <laughs> Right. I say nothing. Okay, so Tim and Sarah are about 30 years old. So we picture Saul, they're about their age, right? And... Saul gets named uh, king of Israel, and immediately King Nahash goes and he, um, he goes to a town of, there's some weird and wonderful names, I'm going to have to read these, it's like the country towns of Australia, you guys have got some great names, so Jabesh Gilead. So Nahash goes and he attacks Jabesh Gilead, 
Uh, the people ask if they can surrender, and he says, well, you can surrender as long as I can cut out your right eye from everyone in the village. They reach out to Saul for, for help. Saul gathers 330,000 people, completely smashes and annihilates Nahash, and the people get excited, and they immediately anoint Saul king. So that's where we are, and that's where we're going to start the story. So as much as I might give Saul a bit of a bad rap, you need to understand he's a young king in a nation that has never had a king. They don't really know what to do with the king. He's inexperienced. He doesn't really know what, his, uh, what being a king is like. You'll see he was a farmer. So when they, when they called him for help, he was busy plowing the field. So that, that's his experience. But now he's a king. So take out your Bibles or your app and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I'm going to read from verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel, and he sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Mishmash and the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's sons Jonathan to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Now, I don't know why Saul sent most of the army home, but we've gone from 330,000 people to 3,000. Everybody say 2,000 Saul, 1,000 Jonathan. There we go. Saul has 2,000 people, and he is in the land of Mishmash. It's a great name. Now, Mishmash is, um, if you want to picture it, that you've got, um, uh, where are we? It's about 15 kilometers northeast of Jerusalem. So if you've got Jerusalem's here, uh, Mishmash is kind of sitting around about here, and, John, and he's got 2,000 men. Jonathan has got 1,000 men, and he is in a place, he's sort of a lot closer to Jerusalem, just north of Jerusalem. Let's carry on. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison, uh, um, the garrison of Philistines at Geba. Now, to do this, Jonathan would have taken his 1,000 men and he would have traveled around Jerusalem and gone to Geba, which is kind of at the northern tip, um, or, well, it's just south, of, um, just south of Jerusalem. Let's carry on. So the news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up in revolt. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba. Can anybody see what's wrong there? They got the wrong guy. They got the wrong guy. Saul says that Saul defeated the Philistine garrison at Geba. But who was it? It was Jonathan. If you're taking notes, if you're an obsessive note taker, this is your first note. In the world of kingdom expansion, choose your leaders carefully. Choose your leaders carefully. See, why did Saul do that? Okay, he's young, he's inexperienced, and you'll see throughout Saul's ministry, he, he never ever settles down into this idea that God has appointed him king. He always operates out of a place of insecurity. If you read a few chapters back, when Samuel says, right, Saul is the guy that's going to be king, he looks around and he can't find Saul. They can't find Saul anywhere. Eventually, God has to say to them, go look in the baggage because Saul is hiding in the baggage. 
and they had to go fish him out of the baggage and, and, and announce him to be king. Saul is never comfortable with this idea of leadership. He's always operating out of a place of security. And when you have godly leaders, people, leaders who know who God is, you understand God's heart, they don't operate out of a place of insecurity. If you spend time with a good worldly leader, so we're talking someone from the business world, you spend time with them, you will think, that is an amazing person. When you spend time with a godly leader, you'll leave thinking, wow, I'm an amazing person. And that's how you know the difference. Godly leaders always look into people's hearts. They see God's God-given identity in that person, and they will draw that God-given identity. And they don't say, look at me. They say, look at them. They build up other people. God, godly leaders will always look into other people and draw them out. So pick your leaders carefully. But I'm not saying that um, we need to look for perfect leaders. And I think uh, there's no such thing as a perfect leader. I just want to sort of clarify that right now. If, if ever you're in a position where I'm your leader, I will eventually hurt you or I will offend you or I will disappoint you. I will. I know you're shaking your head, Sarah, and I love you for it, but it's going to happen. If you've never, ever been offended, honestly, just keep coming to church. It'll happen. I promise you it'll happen. Now, um, am I saying then that when we see our leaders stumble and fall, when we see them make mistakes, do we then say, all right, we need to go look for another leader because that's how we do kingdom expansion? Well, let's just, let's look at John the Baptist, for example. Now, John the Baptist, if you'll remember, he's the guy who, before he was even born, had a ministry spoken over his life that he was going to herald the coming of the Messiah. This is the same John the Baptist who grew up with Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. He grew up knowing Jesus his whole life. This is the same John the Baptist who spent his ministry out in the desert shouting to the Israelites, repent and turn because the kingdom of God is near. This is the same John the Baptist who looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the same John the Baptist who didn't consider himself worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. This is the same John the Baptist who heard that Jesus was hanging out with prostitutes and with drunkards and with sinners and was so offended by his ministry that he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, Are you really the Messiah or did I get it wrong? See, getting offended by your leader is not a good enough reason to go look for another leader. Seeing your leader stumble is not a good enough reason. But there's character flaws you need to look out for. And in Saul, we see someone who is not, they're not stumbling and making mistakes. They're operating out of a place of insecurity, and they're not following God. They don't know the heart of God. So let's see what Saul does. Back at verse 4, all Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now remember, he recently mustered 330,000 men. He summoned the entire army to come and join him. The Philistines mustered a mighty armor of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as grains of sand on the seashore. You may say your Bible says 3,000. If you look at the footnotes, it'll tell you that earlier manuscripts say 30,000. I don't care if it's 3,000 or 30,000. How many know that's a lot of chariots? And this is what happens with kingdom expansion. 
God will put a vision in a leader. Father, we're going to start a ministry for the poor. We will see thousands of people coming through, and they will be fed, and they will be clothed, and they will be loved. Father, we want to start a, a healing ministry out on the streets where your heart is. We want to see people healed. We want to see people coming into your kingdom. We want to see people come to an understanding that they are loved. God puts a vision inside some people, and then he says, go out and do it. And they'll gather a group of people, and we'll see the ministry start. And you step out with faith, and it's amazing. The poor are being fed. The poor are being clothed. We see people out in the streets, and they're getting killed, and they are getting told that God loves them, and the, the gift of prophecy is flowing. And you see people out on the streets, and they're praying for people, and it is absolutely brilliant. The, the motivation is there. The excitement is there. The kingdom of God is moving forward, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. This is the way of kingdom expansion. You see, we're not the only people out there. When we push out and we press into the enemy's boundaries, he pushes back. Rich Nathan's got this great way of explaining it where um, if you've got a team and they practice their footy moves, they do it time after time and it's always perfect, and then come to the match, they do exactly the same thing. And all of a sudden, people are bloody and they're bruised and they're falling down and they're full of grass and they're in pain and they're thinking, what's going on? Well, there's another team on the field. Now... Let me tell you something, and, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from scars here, okay? There is no more lonely and dejected creature in the world than a leader who is trying to lead a team of people through kingdom expansion, and then they hit pushback. They doubt themselves. They doubt their calling. They second-guess every decision that they've made. They doubt the presence of God in their lives. They doubt their ability to lead. And then we as people, as their team, will very kindly gather around them and put, their arm, put our arms around them and say, you know, it's okay. I'm going to tell you everything that you did wrong. I'm going to help you. And we do this to our leaders. And that's the best case scenario. You know, the alternative is we do the, the Australian political, hey, you made a mistake. We're going to do the big brother approach and vote you out of the house. We don't treat our leaders very well when things go wrong. And what we need to realize is that sometimes when everything is going wrong, it's not because the leader's made a mistake. Sometimes it's because they've done exactly the right thing. And we're pressing up against kingdom expansion. So if you're taking notes, this is the second point that I want you guys to realize. When we press in, when we expand our boundaries through kingdom expansion, the enemy presses back. And he presses back hard. Karen and I needed to learn this pretty badly during healing on the streets. We started and it was great. And I remember this one Sunday, it was a few months in, we'd been doing healing on the streets for a bit. And where we used to have quite a large team on this particular Sunday, it was just Karen and I. And we were tired, we were dejected. We were feeling a little bit resentful towards the whole ministry. And we put our little chairs down, and we put our little sign down that said healing. 
and a few meters away from where we were, a man drops dead. He fell over and died. Now, <laughs> I want you to picture the scene because this is very, very real for us. We're sitting at Woody Point in our little chairs. And the ambos are loading this dead body into an ambulance a few meters away from our healing, uh, our healing station. And Karen and I are sitting there in our little chairs, and we've got our little sign that says healing and a situation that says everything but. You press in into kingdom expansion, and the enemy presses back. But you see, all we saw was the situation. We never saw the wall. God had to teach us that. And he did it very kindly because he, through the gift of prophecy, told another man to get on his bicycle and cycle to Woody Point in the middle of the week. We didn't know this. We've actually never met that man. And so he cycles to Woody Point and he gets there and he says, all right, God, now what? God said, go to the pier. So he cycles to the pier and he puts his bicycle down and he said, all right, now what? And he looks up and there is a man standing on the walkway. He's got a stick. On top of the stick is a goat's head. Hanging down from the goat's head are these feathers. And he's walking down the path and he's muttering to himself. And every few steps he hits the, st the staff down on, on, on the walkway. And he keeps doing this. So this chap went up to him and said, can I ask what you're doing? And he wouldn't say what he was doing, but he did say that it was an important religious ceremony for him. And this man followed him as he sort of walked around, hitting his stick on the path. And what we found out afterwards, because this man knows Terry, who knows us, he walked exactly the path that the Hots team walked every single Sunday as we walked around praying for people. When we press in, the enemy pushes back. And that was fine because then Terry just went and broke off everything that the guy did and we don't need to worry too much about that. So sometimes you, you're feeling tired and you're feeling exasperated and you kind of arrive at Woody Point and all you see is 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and more warriors than grains of sand on the seashore. We just need to realize that it's because the enemy pushes back. So let's have a look at how the people of Israel respond, right? So they camped at Mishmash, east of Beth Haven. The men of Israel, this is the greatest understatement in history. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in. And because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad, and Gilead. The next point that I want to make about kingdom expansion is this. Stick with your leaders. Stick with your leaders. These men of faith and power, not paste and flour, were supposed to stick with Saul, right? 
but instead they ran away. You have thousands, and I do mean thousands, of Israelite people climbing up trees, hiding in the bushes, digging holes in the ground to hide. They were going into cisterns. They were trying everywhere to hide from the enemy. Some of them even crossed over to Gad and Gilead. And you know what, you know what that means? They joined the enemy. They really went to go join the enemy. They left the Israelite army and thought, well, if you can't beat him, join him. I'm going to go over there. They joined the enemy. And sometimes things at Vineyard Pine Rivers are heating up. And yeah, we're up against a little bit of pushback. We used to see quite a lot of healing, but then all of a sudden we see that the leaders in that area, their families are starting to get sick. Man, their finances are under attack. You know what? I'm going to step back from leadership just a little bit. And I'm I'm going to watch it from over here because I don't want to be involved in the pushback that's happening over there. Or Vineyard Pine Rivers is pressing into the kingdom of God and we're seeing God pour out His Spirit on people. And we're seeing victories happen. But the pushback of that is that, again, people are sick. People are under depression. People's are losing jobs. People's finances are under attack. And you kind of think, well, people at the church down the road are quite happy. I think I might go stand there for a while. Guys, kingdom expansion. If you want to see kingdom expansion, you stick with your leaders. You stick close to your leaders and you stick with your leaders. And I don't mean sort of you stay far away so that you're not really kind of associated with what's going on there, so you're not part of the kickback, but close enough so that if by some godly miracle something actually manages to push through, you can say, I was there. I was there. I was standing with him the whole time. I mean, stand close, guys. Stand close. Stick with your leaders. It's kingdom expansion. Now, remember a little while ago I said you've got to choose your leaders carefully, right? One way to know what your leaders are really made of is to watch how they react in a tight spot. So let's look at how Saul reacts. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear. So he had some men with him. They were trembling with fear, but at least they were with him. And Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me burnt offerings and peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Now, what we don't know here, because we haven't read it, is that Samuel had told Saul, wait for me, and I will lead the offering. A leader who doesn't know the heart of God, when they're in a tight spot, instead of leaning into him, they take control and try and do it themselves. They lean on what they know. So Saul, what he should have done was lean into the promise of God, which is Samuel will be there and we will do the offering together. But he looks up and he sees 3,000 chariots. 6,000 charioteers, more warriors than grains of sand on the seashore, and he sees his whole army slipping away. So he panics, and he does it himself. When you're choosing a leader, when you're looking at whether or not you're going to follow this leader into kingdom expansion, watch how they react in a tight spot. You want to align yourself and choose a leader who, when they're in a tough spot, they lean on God. They lean on the promises of God. They lean on the Word of God. They lean on whatever God has told them to do because that is their safe place. Saul's safe place was, I'm going to do it myself. 
You know, sometimes I wonder if Saul would have fallen that badly if he hadn't been abandoned by the Israelite army. Just a thought. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, I'm going to skip a few verses because we're kind of running a little bit short on time. So we're going to jump ahead. Basically, we have a little time where Samuel tells Saul that he did the wrong thing. We're going to go to somebody pick a number. 15. All right, we'll go to 15. Samuel left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. When Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 were left. How many did we start with? We started with 3,000, and then he called the entire Israelite army, and he's only got 600 left. Saul and Jonathan and the troops were there in the land of Geba, in the land of Benjamin, and the Philistines set up their camp at Mishmash. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 19. There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear that they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So, whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, packs, axes, or sickles, they had to take them to a Philistine blacksmith. The charges were as follows, a quarter of an ounce of silver for sharpening a plowshare or a pick, an eighth of an ounce for sharpening an axe or making the points of an ox goad. So on the day of the battle, none of the people of Israel had a sword or a spear except for Saul and Jonathan. What does a blacksmith do? He makes weapons. Blacksmith makes weapons. Now, do you guys realize that the enemy is afraid of you. The enemy is afraid of you. The Philistines were afraid of the Israelites. Despite the huge size of the Philistine army, they were afraid of the Israelites. And so instead of waiting for them to come and attack them, they preempted and they put the Israelites in a place where they have no blacksmiths and no weapons. These people of God who were meant to be God's presence on the earth in terms of showing people who God is, had allowed themselves to be some, become so completely disempowered, toothless, they had to go to the enemy for permission to live. What are our weapons? Prayer. And the word of God, right? So, how's kingdom expansion looking at work? Well, Trent, I'm not allowed to pray at work. I'm not allowed to share scripture with people at work. The enemy knows that your weapons for kingdom expansion are prayer and scripture. And so what does he do? He takes all the blacksmiths away. He tries to get us to a point where we have no weapons. Now, guys... I know that there are people in this church who have had such a difficult time with certain work colleagues that they have hated their jobs. And so what do they do? They arrive at work early before everybody else is there and they sit in this person's chair and they pray for them and they declare scripture at work. And it's happened more than once. And let me tell you something, every single time God has turned the situation around. Ironically, he's turned it around in every single situation because he's actually made a way for that person to leave the company completely. But that's not the power I'm talking about here. The power I'm talking about is prayer and scripture. We, as the body of Christ, 
have power. The enemy is afraid of us. Don't go to the enemy to have your weapon sharpened. Let's read on. The pass at Mishmash had meanwhile been secured by a contingent of the Philistine army. Now we're going to talk about two, two of my favorite people in this story. We got my mate Jono and his armor bearer. His armor bearer doesn't have a name, so I'm going to call him Tim for no reason. One day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Now, did he make a mistake? Probably. He should have told his dad what he was doing. Don't forget, though, if Saul's 30 years old and Jonathan is Saul's son, Saul can't be, uh, Jonathan can't be more than 15 years old. Do we have anyone in the church at about 15 years old right now? Give or take a year or two. All right. So those guys, okay? That's what Jonathan looks like. He's young. He's young. He's, um, so I'm going to skip just a little bit of Scripture there, and I'm going to jump down to no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Sinai. The cliff on the north in front was Mishmash. Now remember, Mishmash was where the Philistine outpost was, right? And the one on the south was in front of Geba. Now, I want you to think about this story from the perspective of poor Tim, this armor bearer, all right? Tim is following this 15-year-old guy, this young teenager, into the middle of the enemy camp. And you know what? Jono hasn't even told Tim why they're doing this yet. All Jono said to Tim is, come, we're going to go there. All right. I'll do that. Let's go see what it's up to. See, Tim has been with Jono for a little while. Remember, Jono led the Israelite people to a battle where there were a thousand, um, he had a thousand people, he led them to a victory. See, I reckon Tim was there. I reckon Tim saw the kind of leader that Jono was. I reckon Tim saw Jonathan saying, guys, look at my generals, look at what an awesome job they did. I reckon they saw Jono leaning into God and following the voice of God through battle. You see, Tim doesn't have to look at Jono and say, tell me your plan. Because he knows that Tim knows, uh, Tim knows that Jono knows the heart of God. Jonathan still hasn't shared his plan. And you know why he hasn't shared his plan? He doesn't have one. He doesn't have one. God hasn't given him a plan. Jonathan just decided, on the spur of the moment, I'm going to go over there to the middle of the enemy camp. Tim, let's go for a walk. Tim said, okay. You see... Jono had been listening to the Vineyard Pine Rivers podcast, and he remembers that a few weeks ago, Kirk was speaking about this chap named Gideon, and he remembers the story, hang on, with Gideon, God didn't need a whole army to defeat the army, right? He did it with just a few people, so hey, that's the God that I serve, I'm going to go do that. You see what it looks like to follow someone who knows the heart of God? They don't even need a plan. They just walk because their faith is so completely trusting in who God is. Find a leader who knows the heart of God and stick to that person. Okay, Jonathan does have a plan. Sorry. 
Let's have a read it. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. That's his plan. That's the entirety of his plan. Jonathan said to Tim, perhaps the Lord will help us. He doesn't even know. He doesn't even know for sure whether or not God is going to be with him. He says, perhaps the Lord will help us. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. I love this. Perhaps the Lord will. Perhaps the Lord. He has no idea what God is going to do. So Tim says to John, hang on a second. I've got to tweet this real quick. And he pulls out his phone. OMG, I am going to die. John has lost it. Hashtag no plan. But anyway, hashtag Y-O-L-O. That's you only live once for you old people. Just two of us going to fight whole army. Jono has sword. I have little stick. Hashtag ninja skills. Bye, mom. We'll miss you all. Love, Tim. Hashtag signing out forever. And then Tim looks at Jono. Do all that is in your heart, the armor bearer replied. I am with you completely, whatever you decide. Do you know what a leader can do when someone looks at them and says, do all that is in your heart. I am with you completely, whatever you decide. Absolutely anything. Anything. Do you know what, do you know what this church would look like if we all went to the jive leaders and our kinship leaders and the youth leaders and we said to those guys, do all that is in your heart because we're with you completely, no matter what you decide. Do you know what the Morton Bay region would look like if we as a church all stood up and looked at Kirk and Nick and said, guys, you are our leaders. Do whatever is in your heart. We're with you completely, whatever it is that you decide. If we want to see kingdom expansion, you've got to find a leader who knows God. You've got to find a leader who knows the heart of God. You've got to stick with that person when times get tough. And you have to say to that person, do all that is in your heart because I'm with you completely, no matter what you decide. All right then, Jonathan told him. We will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are, or we'll kill you, then we will stop and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. I still think John is making this stuff up as he goes along. He doesn't have a clue. He's just making this stuff up, but it's, it's, it's good stuff. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. What does that mean? God is with him. Come on, climb up right behind me, Jonathan said to Tim, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered up over half an acre. And suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. 
The final point I want to make is this. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We do our part. We look for a leader that we can follow. We look for someone who is running into the middle of absolute chaos, surrounded by 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and more warriors than we can count. And they're shouting, come follow me. God might do something. And we follow those people into the middle of the chaos because we know that they know the heart of God. Even if they have a sword and all we've got is a little stick, we follow those guys into the middle of the chaos because that's where God is. We follow someone who knows his heart, God's heart for his people. We follow someone who leans on God when times get tough. Again, because they know the heart of God. That's often because they're up against 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers and more warriors than we can count. And they're counting on us to stand with them. So we stand with them. But the battle is the Lord's. His army is mighty to save. Jonathan knew from the story of Gideon that God can save by many or by few. We know from the story of Gideon and from the story of Jonathan that God can save by many or by few. The battle is the Lord's. And if you want to know how the story ends, I might make you finish reading that one at home. I want to jump into this quickly. We're going to do some kingdom expansion. Before we do this, let's just wait on the Lord for a minute. Ask him if he wants to do anything. Lord, I want to thank you that thousands of years ago, you put it in Jonathan's heart to run into the middle of the enemy with no plan other than knowing that you're going to be there when he gets there. Father, I want to pray that you would give us leaders who have that heart. I know that you have, and I thank you for them, and I pray for more. I pray that there would be more young leaders who know the heart of God, young leaders who will say, come follow me. Some of your hearts are stirring in that. I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to me that there are some people, while I'm praying that, they're thinking, God, I want to be that leader. I want to be that leader. If that's you, we'll start there. If if your heart is stirring that and you you want to be that leader, you just want to come up so long, we're going to pray for you. And Father, I want to pray that you would raise up followers like Tim, who we don't doubt our leaders when things go wrong. We don't doubt you when things go wrong, but we'll follow our leaders and be able to look at them and say, do all that is in your heart because we're with them completely, whatever they decide. Father, would you make us followers like that, all of us, every single one of us. Whether we're a leader or a follower, it doesn't matter. We all need to learn to be followers like that. While we're there, there were some words of knowledge for healing I want to read out.